We're going to be starting tonight in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read it to you, and we're going to do a little bit of an intro as we get started here. It starts off, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we start unpacking these verses and this whole book in our study that we're going to begin tonight, uh, it'll do us a little good to ba- do a little background study uh, about the author and the purpose of the letter, that kind of stuff. Now, if any of you have ever been a part of one of my Bible studies and we do an intro, I don't go into too, too much detail. I could take the whole night just doing an introduction to the book of Romans. We're not going to do that. We're going to hit a few things that are going to be helpful for us, a little bit of information that will kind of lay a groundwork, and then we're going to just start diving into the book itself. So who was the book written by? I think it tells us here in verse 1, right? Paul. He was also called Saul originally. And if you don't know, Saul, which we know as Paul, was a devout Pharisee taught by Gamaliel himself and originally against this new movement called Christianity or the way, he actually was arresting and killing uh, those who claimed that Jesus had been, that this Jesus who had been crucified was the Messiah. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to take Paul's word for it. I'm going to have us turn to Acts chapter 26. You're there in the book of Romans. Just back up a couple of pages probably to Acts 26 verses 1 through 5 and then verses 9 through 11. We're going to read a couple of accounts where Paul is sharing his testimony. He's defending himself to the Jews in one place and to the Romans in another. But here in Acts 26, look at verses 1 through 5. So it says, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. Now jump down to verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Think about this for a second. Paul hated this movement called the way. These group of people who were saying that Jesus, who had been crucified, was the Messiah, so much so that he spent his energy chasing them down wherever they were, having them arrested and put to death. By the way, isn't it ironic? What did Paul have to deal with as he began to become one of these preachers? And he had the Jews chasing him from town to town, didn't he? Trying to do to him the exact same thing that he had been doing to others. Jump over to Acts chapter 22. Back up a couple of chapters to Acts 22. Look at verses 1 through 5. It says, brothers and fathers, 
Hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, this is Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are to this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So if you go back to Romans chapter 1, Paul describes himself as a servant or a slave. We're going to talk about that in just a second. He calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. Wait a minute. What happened to this guy? His lifestyle was against this movement called Christianity or the way. He was against this guy, Jesus. He was against those who believed in him, even to the point that he had them put to death. What changed He met Jesus. That's it. He met Jesus face to face. Let's read about the account of that, and then we'll read his own words. Go to Acts chapter 9. You're going to see some things that are very important as we come back to Romans 1 and verse 1 again in just a second. We're going to lay a little foundation that will help you understand what Paul's actually saying when he says a slave of Jesus Christ and an apostle. So look at Acts chapter 9. Look at verses 1 and following. It says, but Saul, this is before his name was changed to Paul, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Now for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? 
But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Jump with me over to Acts chapter 22 again. Let's listen to Paul's own. That's an account of Luke about Paul's conversion and him meeting Jesus face to face. But listen, listen to how Paul tells it himself in Acts 22, verses 6 through 21. Acts 22, starting in verse 6. Remember, he's talking about how he was on his way to Damascus. And as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand and the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I couldn't see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one. Don't miss that. To see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Well, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Jump over to Acts chapter 26. Let's hear another account from Paul, verses 12 through 18. Acts 26, starting in verse 12. In this connection, Paul continues in his testimony here before Agrippa. He said, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appointed uh, or appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Keep reading. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. So I stand here, and so I stand here to, today testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but, but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, 
that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. All right, now I could continue on. There's more. I could take you to Galatians chapter 1 if you want to look at it later on, verses 11 through 24, where Paul explains that the gospel that he preaches isn't one that he received from man, but he had been taught by Jesus face to face. This is important. Go back to Romans 1 again and look at verse 1. Paul, a servant or slave, we'll come back to that in just a second, of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Now, what you need to understand is, is that at the beginning of the church, Jesus chose some to be apostles. And Paul had been chosen as well to be an apostle. But in order for Paul to meet the requirements of what we call a capital A apostle, there were two main requirements of a capital A apostle. One is they had to have seen Jesus face to face and been taught by Jesus himself. And the other one was they were demonstrating that their authority from Jesus by the miracles and the signs and the wonders that they were able to do, which if you know anything about Paul's life, he was. He was able to raise people from the dead and so on. But what here he's saying is, is he said, look, the one who's writing you this letter is a servant slave of Jesus. We'll get back to that in a second, like I said. Called to be an apostle. Now, how many of you, when you got saved, it's because Jesus showed up, you saw him, and he revealed himself to you? None of us. But don't feel bad. If you remember back when Jesus rose from the dead, that week later after he rose from the dead, when Thomas wasn't there that first night, and Thomas had said, I won't believe unless I see and touch his hands and put my hand in his side. And of course, Jesus shows up and said, I know what you said. <laughs> touch, believe. And then Jesus makes this statement. He said, blessed are you because you've seen and believed. More blessed are those who haven't seen and believe. Now, don't think for a second, though, that you believe because you figured it out. The Bible's very, very clear that and if anybody comes to faith, God's the one who does it. He's the one who begins the process. You're going to see when we get to Romans 3. By the way, you're going to see tonight and throughout the rest of this study, as much as I'm going to use other parts of the Bible to help bring some light to our study of Romans, Romans can defend itself. Romans is such an amazingly deep book that actually Romans is what we're going to use to teach Romans. It's that good. When we get to chapter 3, you're going to see that in chapter 10, which we all love to quote, how there's no one righteous, not even one. Verse 11 says there's no one who understands and no one who seeks God. The Bible's very clear that nobody gets up and starts looking for God unless God begins a work in their heart because we're all that dead and that lost. If God doesn't zap us with the, with the paddles, we wouldn't even go looking for him. But once he zapped us with the paddles, doesn't mean you're automatically going to be saved. The Bible says he pricks your heart. He begins to draw you. And then he says, you'll seek me and you'll find me if you'll seek me with your whole heart. But wait a minute, no one seeks God. Oh, he starts the process. It's almost like a game of hide and seek. God says, I'm here. Now you got to come find me. And what does it say in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6? Without faith, it's impossible to please God, for you must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Once he's begun to draw you, once he's begun to reveal himself to you in many ways, which the book of Romans is going to show us how he does all that, you have a responsibility now to, re to respond. That's interesting because Paul 
himself in Acts chapter 13, speaking to a group of uh, people in, in a synagogue. Yeah, they, they were pricked in their heart when he was preaching about the resurrection of the dead and Jesus. And they said, we want you to come next Sabbath and teach some more. And he makes a very interesting statement. He says, continue in the grace of God. In other words, God's begun to work in your heart, the fact that you're curious. But you better stay in it. Then a few verses later, it explains how he comes back the next Sabbath and he preaches and the verse goes on and says, and all who are appointed for salvation believed. So which is it? We're responsible or God does it? The answer is yes. And don't try to figure it out. You'll hurt yourself. The Bible teaches it all. If you're saved, God did it and he gets all the credit. Yet you have a responsibility. And if you go to hell, it's because you chose to. Plain and simple. And there's people out there that think they got God figured out and they jump on one side of the argument or one other side. And I'm telling you, stay out of the ditches. The truth is in the middle. And the moment you think you got it figured out, you don't. That's when you hit the ditch. <laughs> That's when you hit the ditch is when you think you figured it out. Really, really well put. So Paul met Jesus face to face. And he was set apart for the gospel to be a preacher of this message that Jesus himself taught Paul. And he was set out mainly to go to who? To the Gentiles. By the way, folks, let me just chase this real quick. Years ago, I used to think, God, oh, why wouldn't you use Paul to preach to the Jews? I mean, he was taught by Gamaliel. He was a Jew of Jews. I mean, we would have thought, this is the guy. You know, he understands them. He was respected by them. That's the guy to go preach to the Jews. And then finally it hit me. Aren't we glad that God took a Jew of Jews to go preach to the Gentiles? The message that says salvation is not by anything you do. It's not by the law. It's by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Remember at the beginning of the church, there tried to be this Gentile church and Jewish church, and the, the apostles even had to wrestle with that over in Acts 15. Do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to follow the law of Moses, all this stuff? Thank God he used a Jew of Jews to go preach to us Gentiles and say, salvation is by nothing but faith alone in God's grace through faith Jesus Christ. That's it. Oh, and by the way, you know who's the best person to go preach to the Jews? Because Galatians 1 goes on and tells us that Peter had been chosen to go preach to the Jews. You know why Peter's the best one to go preach to the Jews? Oh, he's just a fisherman. He's uneducated. They're not going to listen to him. Oh, but listen to his message. He goes to those Jews and he can say to them, guys, I know you rejected him. I know you denied him. I know you saw him and then had him put to death. Let me tell you something. I lived with the man for three years. I ate with him. I saw him raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. I saw his body transformed when his glory on that mountain shone through. I was there when Father's voice spoke, when we were enveloped in the Shekinah glory of the cloud. I saw Moses and Elijah. I wasn't even allowed to tell the other guys what I had seen. I was with him for three years, and I rejected him too. I denied I even knew him. Three times on one night... And he forgave me. He'll forgive you. Man, God's plan's best. You're going to find this out as we start touching on this and going to get into it a lot more in our study of Romans. God has a specific plan for Paul. And he decided that he was going to become a slave of Jesus for whatever purpose God had for his life. And I want to tell you the same thing for you. You will not find peace 
or joy in your Christian walk until you finally surrender to what God's plan is for your life and why he saved you, not your plans. We've been unfortunately taught a bill of goods. James, you'll probably agree with this. You've been seminary trained and Bible school trained. And, and you, know, you, know, you know how we've been taught to set our goals. And where do you want to be a year from now? And what's your five-year plan? And what's your 10-year plan? And I'm mentoring pastors around the country. I was talking with one yesterday in Massachusetts. And he's planning a church in the western part of Massachusetts. And he had contacted me for some help. And as we were on the phone with him, I said, let me say something to you real quick that's going to sound against everything you're taught right now because he's in school. Don't set your goals. Because it actually goes against what the scripture teaches. Have you ever read back, and you're going to see this tonight in Paul's letter. We're going to see it tonight. But have you ever read Paul's writings that he wrote in the end of 1 Corinthians, beginning of 2 Corinthians? He says, I wanted to come see you guys. I wanted to come see you, but God kept saying he wanted me to be here a little longer. And then when I finally did get there, Titus wasn't there and I didn't have a peace and so I had to move on. And what does James say? Don't say tomorrow or such and so we're going to do this and that. Say if the Lord wills. There's nothing wrong with having an idea of where you want to go, a direction you'd like to head. But remember, God gets to figure it all out and how determine how it all plays out. And so Paul now, our Bibles will say servant. The actual word really should be slave. He said, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Go to Philippians chapter 3. This will hopefully help you understand something Paul wrote here even a little bit more now. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. By the way, James, all the plans you had for ministry, they've worked out just like you thought they would, hadn't you? Exactly. Me too. Yeah. Philippians 3, look at verses 4 through 9. He's talking about people that have confidence in their flesh. They put their faith in what they're able to do. And look what he says in verse 4, Philippians chapter 3. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Sir, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, good luck finding something I did wrong. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, I throw that all away. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Have you ever thought about what Paul lost by giving his life to Jesus? Do you think that Paul had some connections moving up in the ranks of the Pharisees? He had some, well, let's just say he had some club memberships. They were probably all gone now. Family connections, all that stuff that he had built up was now thrown away to the point now that these people that were his chums were set out to go kill him because he believed in Jesus. I'm going to encourage you with something, and he's going to say, it doesn't sound like encouragement. Well, it is. Get ready for the fact that you're going to be tested as the days continue between now and when Jesus comes and gets us even more as to whether or not you're willing to forsake all for the cause of Christ. 
By the way, don't let man tell you what that's going to look like. God gets to choose. For some, he says to Paul, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. But that doesn't mean everybody's going to suffer the same amount. What if he wants John to remain alive until he returned? You know what I'm saying? You run the race that Christ has for you. A lot of times when we start hearing about how much we may suffer or God may have us go through persecution because of our faith, we quickly want to find out how bad she's going to get it or how bad he's going to get it. Don't worry about that. But I'm going to tell you this. If you're truly ready to get serious with the Lord and surrender to his plan for your life, be ready for some of the stuff you thought you were going to be able to take with you to be gone. Actually, the Bible says in the book of Timothy, Paul himself writes, those who desire to live godly for Jesus Christ will be persecuted. He understood that himself. He gave up all the plans for his life in order to live out Jesus' plans for his life. Now, he still wrestled with us a little bit. He had been sent and told from the beginning, you're going to the Gentiles. But where did Paul go preach? In the synagogues. He went to the synagogues, tried to preach to the Jews, till finally he came to realize, okay, Lord, I get it, I get it, I get it. I'm supposed to go to the Gentiles. So even Paul had to continue to learn that whole shaping process, as we all do. Now, Paul most likely wrote this letter in around 57, 58 AD from the city of Corinth. Now, Paul had been collecting money for the poor in Jerusalem, those same Christians he was trying to persecute and kill. He's now going around gathering love offerings from other churches to bring back to Jerusalem. And he had hoped to go to Spain from Jerusalem via Rome. That was his plan. You say, well, how do you know all this? Well, go to Romans chapter 15. Paul himself lays it out for us. Go to Romans 15. Look at verses 22 through 29. Paul is writing a letter to a group of people he's not met yet. He's not been to Rome at the point of the writing of this letter. In Romans 15, look at verses 22 through 29. He says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to also be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. And I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So Paul's plan, he had wanted to go to Rome for a while. It was an area that he knew that there were believers, yet at the same time, he had never met them and he wanted to go encourage them. And so he writes this letter to them. By the way, I don't know if you all noticed or not. Look at it later on. You read Acts 21 through 28. Just read it in order. You'll find out he ends up going to Jerusalem, like he had said, to deliver the money. But while he was there, he gets arrested by the Jews, and they try to kill him, and the Romans stop the killing. And then they begin this whole trial process that takes a few years. And guess where Paul ends up? In Rome. He ends up in Rome. But when he gets to Rome, he's a prisoner. Oh, he encourages these believers in Rome, but he has to do it from a house in which he's held in prison. They have to come visit him there. He had a desire to go to Rome for many years. It didn't happen when he thought it was going to happen. But when it did finally happen, it didn't happen the way he thought it was going to happen. Does that sound familiar? Does that feel like anybody else's life? It's all of our lives, isn't it? But you know what? That's okay. 
The sooner we give up on our plans and surrender to the Lord's plans and believe that his plans are good, the happier we'll be. Again, that doesn't mean you don't have wishes or desires or hopes. The Bible says, I've hoped to come see you. I wanted to. That was my desire. I, but I let God call the shots of the wind. I don't want you to all become fatalistic and say, well, whatever God's going to do, God's going to do. No, no, no. Have dreams. Have desires. Don't say, by this time, I will be there. That's where it takes over into the flesh, and we stop walking in the Spirit. And sometimes God says, great dream, great wish. Actually, I've chosen so-and-so to have that. I've got something else for you. But trust me, when you really believe me, it'll be okay. All right? Now, Paul most likely had a couple of purposes in writing the book of Romans. The first one is to introduce himself and prepare them for his arrival since he had never been there. But I think there's a bigger reason, which I think will be a help for us. I think the bigger reason for his writing this book, and I think the Holy Spirit's reasons actually are what's behind this, is to lay out a clear teaching or a treatise on the gospel and Christian living. Here's people he had never met yet. Remember, he had been given the gospel by Jesus himself. It wasn't something man taught him, and he was just passing it on. He had been taught by Jesus, and his call was to go to the Gentiles to preach to them the good news. Here was a group of Gentiles mainly. There's some Jews in Rome, but mainly Gentiles who had started to come to faith in Christ. And he wanted to do what God had called him to do and share with them what God had shared with him. And actually, as you're going to see as we get into Romans, and that's why I really feel like God said the next book we're to do is the book of Romans, is that Paul is going to be laying out for us. And I hope you can make every week. And if you can't, thank God for Chris and his son Thomas who does the Tuesdays and the videos that are online. Make sure you stay with us and and catching up with the weeks because they're recorded. You're going to find the book of Romans probably to be one of the neatest and best books for you to study as a believer in Jesus Christ because it lays out the depth of the gospel from the beginning all the way through to Christian living. And that's what I think God wants us to really understand. I think it's time for us as a church to go back to the basics of the gospel, the root of the gospel, the true depth of what it's saying. And from there, it'll manifest itself. You'll see when we get into chapter 12, you start getting into Christian living, submission to authorities, not judging each other, and so on. And folks, let me just tell you, it's going to be a fun study. I cannot wait. I am so excited about this. All right? Now, I actually go to Romans 15. I believe Paul's letter will be of great value for us in our day as well for this very reason. He's laid out this perfect, wonderful treatise on the gospel in Christian living. Look at Romans 15. Now, Paul's talking at this point about what was written in the Old Testament, yet at the same time, in our day, what he says applies to his book as well. Romans 15, look at verses 4 through 7. Don't miss this. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, may the God of endurance and encouragement Grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Jump over to verse 13. Look again. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. If you go back to verses, verse 4, how is God described? He's the God of what and what? 
No, verse 13 is the God of hope. And endurance and what? By the way, does anybody else need both of those right now? Does anybody else need a little bit of endurance? Does anybody else need a little pickup shot, a little Red Bull or whatever? All right, you know what I'm talking about? He's the God of endurance. And encouragement. I actually just finished two weeks ago preaching a whole series of messages. They're available on our YouTube website if you want to go there. Uh, a whole series of messages, brand new series that I just finished preaching in Galax, Virginia at a church there on endurance. And folks, I had a blast. And if you're needing a shot of that, go to our web website or go to the, the YouTube channel and look up those messages on endurance. There's five messages on endurance. But he's the God of endurance and encouragement. But what's he going to use to encourage? Encourage us and to give us endurance. The word. That's what he did with the two men on the road to Emmaus. Remember, they had gotten discouraged on the day of the resurrection. They started heading home. And what does he do? He just keeps pointing them back to the word. That's what I hope to be used of to do to you and for you and with you uh, in our study of Romans. It's to show you the encouragement of this book of Romans. Can't wait till we get to it. Now, we've briefly looked at Paul and his conversion and his calling, but now we've got to look closely at what Paul was set apart for. Go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. What was he set apart for? To preach the gospel. He was set apart, called to preach the gospel. Oh, it's the gospel of God, though. It's God's gospel, not man's gospel. This is God's gospel or the good news of God. But look at verse 2, though. This gospel was promised beforehand in the writings of the Old Testament prophets. Look at verse 2. He says, I've been set apart for the gospel of God, which he, God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. We're going to just stop there and we're going to break this down for you. A lot of people think that there's an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. Or God was, you know, doing it one way in the Old Testament and a new way in the New Testament. No, that's not it at all. Listen to what Paul said. I've been set apart to preach the gospel of God, which he's been promising all along. This message I preached to you is not something new. It's been there all along. And as I'm about to just touch on, the scriptures actually show us that salvation, even in the Old Testament, had always been by faith in God's provision for man's sin. It was never by what you did. You never earn salvation in the Old Testament. It's always been believing what God said, believing in his provision for your sin, and he gives you righteousness. Isn't that how Abraham became righteous? Was he declared righteous before he was circumcised or after? Before. Oh, we'll get to that in chapter 4. I'm getting ahead of myself. The book of Romans deals with all this stuff. But actually, Abraham was declared righteous before he was even circumcised. Why? Because he believed God. And God credited it to him as righteousness. L let me show you a couple of things real quick. Go to Romans chapter 3. Look at verses 19 through 24. Now, as we're going to Romans 3 verses 19 through 24, right before is all that famous section about no one's righteous, not even one and all that. And he lays out how everybody's guilty before God. Look at verse 19. He says, now what we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, before we go any further, the purpose of the law is to show you you can't keep it. James chapter 2, verse 10 clearly says, if you're able to keep a whole law, yet stumble at just one point, you're guilty as if you broke it all. 
Because the one who said, don't do this, also wrote, don't do this. And if you break the law in one area, you're guilty as if you broke it all. Because the only people that will be declared righteous are the people that can keep the law perfectly. Anybody here done that? Actually, there is one, and he's here. His name's Jesus. But none of us have. And the purpose of the law is to reveal that we have this sin problem. Once it's revealed to you, I can't keep the law. I can't do it perfectly. It's done its job, the Bible says. I'm going to ask you a question, and we're going to get the answer tonight, but I'm going to dive into it deeper when we get to chapter 5 of Romans. Does God want lost people to sin more or sin less? I heard someone say more, and that's correct. That goes against everything we think. No, 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 God wants lost people to sin less. No, no, no. As you'll see when we get to Romans chapter 5, verse 20, the scripture says that the law was added so that the trespass would increase. In other words, if they're guilty already, but they think they're not, God says, I want them to realize how guilty they are. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give them the law and the law is going to fuel within them every sinful thing that they have already within them. Paul said, I didn't know what coveting was till the law said, don't covet. And then everything covetous within me rose up. God gives us a law to show us what's already there because he knows the law is going to make us break the law. Have y'all been walking down the sidewalk and you weren't even thinking about stepping on someone's lawn until they said, don't touch my grass? Or the sign was there and you, all of a sudden you go, when you weren't even thinking about it before? What happened? By the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50, the fuel of the law or the power of the law. Sorry, power of sin is the law. The, the, what fuels sin is the law. The gasoline that gives fuel to sin is the law. Folks, if you think you're going to be right by being good for God this week, and we all fall into that, we want to do better so God will like us more, you're still thinking you can earn his, his credit by sinning or not sinning. Can't do it. But look at what he said next in verse, chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, but don't miss this, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, the law's purpose is to show us that we can't keep it. Now, a righteousness is being manifested Apart from the law, which is by faith alone in Jesus, although the law and the prophets have already been bearing witness to it. By the way, did y'all ever think about why Moses and Elijah, the two that appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus? Do y'all know who Moses and Elijah represented? The law and the prophets. Elijah was the prophet of prophets, and Moses was used to God to write the law. Guess who showed up in person? The law and the prophets. And what did they say? Listen to him. Write this down. Look at it later on. Jesus in John chapter 5, verse 39 says this to the Jews. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you find eternal life. These are the scriptures that talk about me. And by the way, when he said you search the scriptures, what did they have? The Old Testament. Jesus comes on the scene and he says, you guys are reading the Old Testament because you think by doing what it says, you'll be righteous. They've been pointing to me. I'm going to show you just a couple real quick to show you that the gospel 
of salvation by faith alone in God's provision for your sin has been there all along in the Old Testament. Let me take you to a place you might not have ever seen it. Go to Job chapter 33. Job 33. Now, Job has just finished saying that he wants to have a face-to-face with God, but who can talk to God and who can ever defend himself before God? And does God even speak and all this stuff? Well, Elihu shows up on the scene and he speaks for God. And look at what he says in chapter 33 of Job, verse 14. For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings, that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. And he keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Now man is also rebuked with pain on his bed or with continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near to the pit and his life to those who bring death. Now if there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of a thousand to declare to man what is right for him. And he's merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. Let his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. He sings before men and he says, I sinned and perverted what was right and it was not repaid to me. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. Did you catch that? Elihu says, man, God's been trying to get man's attention lots of ways, sometimes with dreams, sometimes with visions, sometimes with sickness. He, he, he realizes, I'm about to die. And God actually says, you know what? I got good news for you. You got a mediator, someone that has paid your ransom. And the guy goes, so I'm just going to pray to God and seek this one that's paid my ransom. And what's his message? I sinned and didn't do what was right, but it wasn't repaid to me. And I've been given righteousness. That's the gospel. It's in the Old Testament. Before the law. Before the law. Oh, by the way, if you keep looking, you'll see in the book of Hosea, the righteous shall live by faith. Psalm 51, what does David say after he sins with Bathsheba? He said, if you desire sacrifice, I'd give it. If you want me to do something to make myself right, I'd do it. But what you desire is a broken heart and a contrite spirit, repentance. That you won't despise. It's been there all along. Go to Isaiah 53. Go to Isaiah 53. You're going to see Paul quote from this later on. We get to chapter 10 of Romans. Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, we don't know who this he is yet as they're writing it at the time, but we do know now. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. 
He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned all of us, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Oh, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man, we know now his now know his name, Joseph of Arimathea, in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and he has put him to grief. Now when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he's going to come back to life. He's going to see his offspring. He's going to prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And he makes intercession for the transgressors. Way, way back, hundreds of years before Jesus took on flesh, Isaiah is given the gospel to write it. That's why the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 is sitting there in the chariot and he says to Philip, who's Isaiah talking about, himself or somebody else? And Philip's able to get up in the chariot and show him this has been fulfilled and his name is Jesus. And even though he died, he didn't do any sinning. There was no deceit in his mouth, no violence. He had no reason to be put to death, but he was put to death for all of our sin. And oh, but he didn't just die. After the suffering of his soul, he's going to come back to life. He's going to see his offspring. He's going to prolong his days. And he's going to declare many to be righteous. Folks, that's the Old Testament gospel. That's the New Testament gospel. It's the gospel. Don't think for a second that there's Old Testament, New Testament God. He's the same. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let me give you one more. Go to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Look at verse 1. Tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Jump down to verse 6. I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Listen to what they say. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Does that sound familiar? When were they saying that? Well, it was on the cross. Word for word, they were saying this. Oh, jump down to verse 14. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint, and my heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Remember Jesus saying, I thirst. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. 
They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Folks, the gospel can be traced. I, I could take weeks showing you the Old Testament gospel. There's way, way, way many more. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. When God tells Satan, a seed, descendant of this woman, is going to defeat you, going to crush your head. Oh, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And all through, Jesus comes on the scene. And even though the Old Testament prophesied about it, and Paul had known the Old Testament through and through, he still didn't have his eyes open to who Jesus was. And he was against this guy and against those who believed in him to the point of putting him to death. And then Jesus, by his grace, could have just said, hey, Paul, come here. But he didn't. What did he do? He revealed himself to him and he said, I want you to give your life to me. I got a plan for your life, but I'm real. And Paul, from that moment on, set apart to tell people, even if it meant he had to suffer, Jesus is alive. He's real. And we've been given that same commission wherever he sells us to go and whoever he wants us to go to. We've been given the commission of the gospel of God. Oh, go back to Romans 1. It's not only a gospel of God that's been promised beforehand by the holy prophets in the scriptures. Look at verse 3. It's concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, this gospel is not only a gospel of God, not of man, and not only was it promised beforehand, it's about Jesus, who was a man. He was descended from David according to the flesh. He was a human, and you could trace his lineage back to David. Remember in our study of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the genealogy of Jesus Christ descended from Abraham and also from David? You can trace his human lineage to David, but at the same time, he was proven not only to be a human, he was also proven to be God himself. How? According to the scripture? We just read it right there. He was proven to be the son of God by the spirit of holiness. How? To his resurrection from the dead. Folks, I'm going to challenge you. If you like to do a little digging, I want you to do some research about did Jesus really rise from the dead? Go do some research. You will actually find it is the most provable historical event in the whole history of the world. It really is. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most provable event in the history of the world. God revealed that he is not just a human, but God himself by Jesus rising from the dead. Now, write some scriptures down because they'll help you understand a passage we're going to turn to real quickly. Write down Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It's a famous passage in Psalms where God says, I, today you've become my son, talking about Jesus, even though he's always existed. In Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, in that passage, you're going to see another famous prophecy where he says that he won't let his Holy One see decay. Go to Acts chapter 13 with me. Paul is now preaching to those people I was telling you about earlier at that synagogue. And he says in uh, verse 26, Acts 13, verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, that's both Jew and Gentile, 
To us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they didn't recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And I gave you that quote. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, we know it as Psalm 16, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. In other words, his body decayed. But then he goes on and says, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. His body never decayed. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Again, I'm going to say something to you. And we're going to see this in the book of Romans all the way through. Stop trying to make the, the gospel understandable. Now, I, I, stick with me here. Stop trying to make the gospel understandable. Preach it. It's powerful all by itself. Actually, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that in chapter 2, that God wants to use the foolishness of preaching to save people. Our message is this. God loves you. He loves the whole world. And he wants the whole world to be saved. He knows the whole world's not going to be saved. But if you'll listen to him when he calls you and you respond in faith, you'll realize that what he's trying to tell you and he's told all along from the Old Testament to now is this, is that God's plan all along was that he would be the one who would make you righteous by your faith in him and his provision for your sin. Oh, he's revealed it through lots of different ways. You're going to see in Romans 1 through creation, through him writing his law in your heart if you haven't heard his law. And he's been revealing it through the, the Jews and the covenants and the sacrificial systems. And he, he's been revealing it through his spirit, plucking on our hearts and tugging on our hearts and the message is this, that if you would just believe that there was a man who was also God and he lived a human life, yet he never sinned and he was punished on that cross by God for everyone's sin. And if you would believe that what he did covers you and ask God, would you take his righteousness and apply it to me? He will make you righteous and you'll be saved and you'll get to go to heaven when you die. That's the message. Well, what about what about? Let me say again. There was a man. His name is Jesus. We try to get caught up into all these little tangents and what about this and what about that? And we think we have to defend. The message of the gospel is share the gospel. If they understand it, who's opened their eyes? You? No. I want I got three minutes left, so I don't have time to really chase this long. But let me just say this. I had a colonoscopy appointment yesterday. Sorry, not yesterday, Monday. I was trying to erase it, but still there. I haven't had the colonoscopy yet. It's my second one. Too long of a story. But I'm getting scheduled for another one. I'm meeting with a brand new doctor I've never met with before because of a whole lot of other stuff. Too long of a story. But as I'm in this man's office, and I don't know what his nationality is, but his first name is Hassan, he looks at me and he says, what do you do for a living? 
I said, you asked. I told him. Immediately, he said, what do you think about what's going on in the globe right now? Where do you think the world is headed? I thought to myself, he doesn't realize I'm just about to publish a book on Revelation called What Happens Next. It's actually hopefully going to be out by the end of the year. And I quickly just answered, short version, I believe we're headed to a one world government. The Bible actually says it's going to happen, that there's going to be a time of chaos on the globe. There's going to be a one world ruler is going to come. There's going to be a one world government. And things are going to get bad. And we could try to slow it down as much as we can by voting and praying and all. But it's going to happen because the Bible said it. And that's where we're headed. I said, but I'm not worried about it. Because those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, he said, promised to take care of us through it and take us out of it before it gets real, real bad. And then he starts asking me about who do I think the two witnesses are going to be. And he starts, it was amazing. And here's a man that I don't know if he really knows the Lord, but he's got questions. The gospel's this. There was a man, and he was more than just a man. His name is Jesus. He's proven all through the Old Testament to be the one because he fulfilled all those prophecies. And he lived a sinless life. I challenge you to find anything he ever did that was wrong. And God punished him in our place. And he rose from the dead three days later, and he'll give righteousness to all who put their faith in him. And all the other stuff, in time, he'll reveal to us we study his word and walk with him. But the first thing we need to know is we need to be saved. We're going to close tonight. We have one minute, and I think we can do it. Not only does Paul go on in Romans 1 to say that this, look at verse 6, the gospel's for all the nations. We'll deal with that a lot more as we go through Romans. Don't miss this. It not only was to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. I could show you over and over through the Old Testament how God was saving Gentiles, even in the Old Testament, all along. And sometimes when the Jews were rejecting him, he was doing more among the Gentiles. Just ask Naaman or the widow in Tyre and Sidon. But look closely as we close tonight at verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you a question. Was the book of Romans written to believers only or to everyone? The answer is everyone. But say, no, no, those called to be saints. Write this down and look at it later on. Write this down and look at it later on. Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. I'm going to paraphrase it for you as we close. But also, you all know John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Jesus died for everybody. This message of the gospel is for everyone. On top of that, we already saw when we read in Romans 3 that the whole world may be held accountable before God. But in Matthew 22, Jesus tells a parable about how he sent his servants to invite the Jews to come to the wedding feast. And he said he sent them to call them. But they all said, nah, no thanks. And they did all the sorts of other stuff. Then he told them, go out in the highways and the byways and invite everyone. And they were all invited in. In the parable, it says, good and bad. But as the master of the wedding feast comes and looks at the party, he realized there's someone in there who's not wearing a wedding garment. And he says, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? And had him cast out. For those of you who don't know this, uh, back when the uh, Jews would have a, a wedding feast, if you were invited to the wedding feast, what you would do once you got there is the master would give you all a garment to show that you were invited and accepted. It, it showed his approval. So if someone was in the wedding feast and he's not wearing the garment, he pretty much said, don't need that. My clothes are good enough. You don't want to do that. You've been invited, but you have to be approved by him. And how does he approve you? Faith alone in Jesus Christ. 
But listen to what he says in verse 14. Many are called, but few are chosen. We're going to start getting into that as we study Romans, how the gospel's for everybody. Not, Jesus didn't just die for certain people. He died for everyone. Everyone's called. But the ones that are chosen are the ones who respond in the manner that he's predetermined, which is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. I love you. We'll see you next week.